0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, quite an experience to climb up here. (laughs) And I'll tell you, it gives me an even greater appreciation for Pastor Craig and what he does behind the scenes to be ready to do this every week. And I hope you'll be praying for him while he's away and he would have good rest and refreshment uh, from what he does so much for us but uh, I count it a privilege to be here with you. Now, you know, all of us, and we represent a wide variety of ages here, all of us are in different stages of life. Some of us uh, are teens. That doesn't include me. Uh, Some of us are teens or in 20s or in 30s and are getting established in relationships and career and daily life patterns. And you may find yourself in the process of answering the question, what am I to do in my life?" Others of you are middle-aged, and your focus is staying on course uh, that you set at young adulthood, or perhaps have adjusted along the way, and you're continuing to grow in relationships and in career and in family. Your eyes may even be on the future and your prospects of retirement. You commonly are in the process of asking the question, What comes next in my life? And those of us who are older may be closing out our careers or settling into post-career life, and we're trying to finish well in life and work and relationships, and we may even think that we have arrived, or should have by now, and are asking the question, now what? The bottom line is, even though we vary in age and experience, no matter what stage of life you're in, you will find that we are all in transition from that which was familiar and headed toward what is to come, the unknown. That transition can be a cause of great stress and worry if you don't take advantage of the resources that God has provided in His Word I want you to turn now in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 3 through 11. And when you've found the passage, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 1, beginning at the third verse. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus, our Savior, and through your Word, where you bring to our minds what you have spoken years ago that still is relevant to us today. We pray that you would open our hearts to you and to your spirits leading, that you would teach us more about you, that you would teach us more about ourselves and how we are to live. And in the end, may you receive all the honor and glory and praise, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, American culture tends to tell us that we are individuals living in isolation, striving to become all that we have dreamed of being through the application of serious effort and resolve. Yet, you know, God is pointing us in a very different approach that will prove to be far more satisfying than what our culture tells us and far more successful because it's the approach that He has created us for. As we look into our passage, I want us to see three things, the work that God has begun in us, the blueprint of that work that God has begun, and the resources that He's provided to enable us to do our part in His work within us, the work, the blueprint, the resources. In the face of the transitions that all of us are dealing with, it's important that we have a firm foundation in God. And this starts with us asking ourselves some questions. What work has God begun in me or in you? When you find yourself struggling with transitions that you are experiencing, perhaps feeling uh, bogged down in life, like you've lost your way, or just feeling like you've stagnated and are not making progress toward your goals, ask yourself that question, what work has God begun in me? And be encouraged by its answer that your faith in Jesus Christ is clear evidence that you are God's workmanship. He has begun a good work in you. Like it says there in verse 6, where Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Paul had planted the Philippian church, and he knew its members very well to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ as their Lord. And so he speaks with great confidence of God's work in them. But how can a person be sure of God's work in another person or even in ourselves? Paul says, I'm sure. It's interesting, I looked at that word in Greek and it shows up in other places. In fact, in Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul uses the very same word when he says, for I am sure that neither death Nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's confidence is in the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God has declared his unlimited love for us in Jesus. It's not debatable. And so with that same certainty, Paul speaks of God's work in the Philippians because he's certain about what God has promised to do in those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation and for a future. Because God is faithful and true to his word, we can have the same certainty about God's work in us that Paul had about God's work in the Philippians. Have you entrusted your life to God through faith in Jesus Christ? If you have, then there is no doubt that you are experiencing already the good work of God in your life. Even if you don't sense it at this moment, that good work which God has begun is not contingent upon your ability to feel it or to sense it. It is a fact because God has initiated it and declared it, and he cannot lie, and he does not change from what his word has declared. So what is the goal of God's work? Is it simply a patch-up job to take us where we are and put a Band-Aid here and a Band-Aid there and make us a little better than we are? No, that's not it at all. In fact, in Romans 8.29, Paul states that God's work in us is to conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. God's at work in us, making us like Jesus in character. Now, you may be thinking, I'm not equal to this task. How, how How can God do such a thing? Well, you'd be right to think so because you're not equal to the task. None of us are. None of us have the wherewithal within ourselves to make even the smallest step toward being like Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself said in John 15, 5, that apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we cannot accomplish anything of the sort. The good news for those of us who are trusting in Jesus and seeking to live for him, is that it's not up to our native ability to become like Jesus. It's not up to our strength to accomplish that work. In fact, the good news is told to us later in Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul tells us that we who are following Jesus have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, God himself dwelling within us to change us to change our will and our ability to become like Jesus. God is in each of us to carry out this work that He has begun. Now, since God has begun such a work within us, then what else gives us confidence? Again, look at verse 6 there in Philippians 1. He says, "'He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion.'" at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, God always completes what He has begun. He never forsakes or gives up on His work. Paul, thinking of his history with the Philippian Christians, speaks with such joy in their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, he says in verse 5. God began to work in them, and Paul is rejoicing I mean, look at verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, the Philippians were not embarrassed that Paul was a prisoner. They were not embarrassed by Paul. They continued as steadfast partners with Paul in the gospel ministry. God was completing his work in Paul and the Philippians, even in the face of difficult circumstances. And the truth is that no matter what obstacles you or I may face, God will complete the work that he has begun in us right up to the day when we go to heaven to be with the Lord Jesus. Now, ask yourself a question. What's great enough? What's big enough to block God's work? Is there anything that can block God's worth, His work? And the answer is nothing, not the sins of others and nor our own sins. Some of you may be wondering what Paul means in verse 6 when he talks about completing the work. Will God at some point look at you and me and sigh and say, well, close enough, and give up on transforming us? No, because Paul says that God completes his work. He always does perfect work. He never does anything slipshod. You remember the book of Deuteronomy? We, we spent a little time in Deuteronomy. But in chapter 32, verses 3 and 4, Moses sings of our God, and this is what he says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Notice that Moses testifies that God's work is perfect, and he said this after many years of experience of the Israelites not doing so well in the wilderness, and yet he says God's work is perfect. God makes no mistakes, not in your life. Not in my life. Therefore, God, who has begun a good work in us, we can be confident that God's work will end in perfection. And if you don't want to take my word for it, listen to what it talks about us in Hebrews 12, verse 23, where it gives us a glimpse of heaven and it refers to us as the righteous made perfect. That's our future your future, my future, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and following Him in this life. What about you? Are you living in fear and uncertainty about your future? Or are you living each day with the confidence that comes from knowing that God is at work in you and has the goal of making you more and more like the Lord Jesus, even using your failings to perfect you? That confidence can be yours if you're trusting in Jesus and keeping your eyes fixed on him. It's easy to think in general about God's perfecting work in us, but we need to look more closely at the specifics of God's plan. What clues does God give us that he's going to change you and me? Well, he gives us a blueprint for God's work in us here in Paul's prayer. There's so many competing demands on our time and our attention that it can be easy to overlook the path that God has placed before us. Yet, Paul's prayer for the Philippian Christians reminds us of what God counts as most important for us in our life's journey. Look at verses 9 and 10. Again, in Philippians 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, "...and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now let's examine these blueprints that God has for us. What area of change does Paul pray for first? Look again there at verse 9. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. God's blueprint is that we would have love that is always abounding. Now, let's face it, when we speak about love, often our mind goes to what our culture tells us, which is about a Nicholas Sparks movie or book or perhaps a film on the Hallmark Channel where two people fall in love through some deeply romantic journey. But God has a much bigger love in mind for us than that. How do I know? Well, look back at verse 8, where Paul writes, For God is my witness, how I, learn, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. You see, the love that Paul has in mind is the love that Jesus Christ has for you and me. Remember Romans 5.8, where God says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? That's the depth of love that Paul is talking about here. That mind-boggling, totally undeserved, gracious love that Jesus has for you and for me is the very love that Paul says he has for the Philippians Christians. God's plan is for us to draw on his amazing love that we've received from Jesus and pour out that same love on those around us. God's love doesn't need to grow. It's perfect as it is in every way. But let's face it, you and I need to grow in our love for others. We tend to love only those who are lovable. But thankfully, God didn't stop at that level of love toward us because we weren't particularly lovable. Jesus loves us enough to die for us even while we were still sinners. God calls each of us to grow in love so that we would love even those who have hurt us. His goal is that our love would abound in and through us in ever-increasing degrees. When we love others that way, you know what happens? They see Jesus in us and they're drawn to him. We become living examples of the love of Jesus Christ, and we make the words of the Bible visible in our lives. Love must be much more than just mere emotion. It must have direction in order to function rightly. So what direction does God's work cause our love to abound in? Look back at verse 9 again, and it says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge... And all discernment. God gives us knowledge and His discernment. He wants us to know Him. That's what the knowledge is about. John 17, 3, Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. God wants us to know Him, He wants us to know Him thoroughly. And when we get to know God by reading the Bible, by studying it, by meditating on its application in our lives, you know, through personal study or through study within our community groups, they're both beneficial. When we do that, we also grow in our knowledge of God to a point where we begin to know what true love looks like and discernment. I'm going to look up in the dictionary just to be sure. Discernment is the ability to distinguish one thing from another, to perceive the difference between things and to make good judgments about those things. But God's discernment is really special because He enables us to know how to apply God's love. He opens our eyes to see people accurately as God sees them. And he gives us the discernment that enables us to see their needs and to know how God would have us meet those needs. When we have God at work in us to love us, we can know and see what he has in mind. We can know him and see how we can apply love toward others. And then we become capable of taking the next step. And what is the next part of God's work? Look down in verse 10. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, the next step is he's going to enable us to make right choices. Every day you make innumerable choices about how you'll behave or how you relate to other people. And as we live our lives informed by God and equipped by the Holy Spirit who's at work within us, we will be much more likely to make right choices among the many options we have in our daily lives. When you encounter a neighbor who doesn't clean up after his dog in your yard or a coworker who selfishly sabotages your project for personal gain, how will you react? What if a friend says something hurtful to you or about you what will you do? Our culture tells us to get angry or even to get even, but God's path is radically different. In 1 Thessalonians 5.15, God says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Jesus himself teaches us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, You see, love is costly, but it's right, and God alone is able to equip you and me to love as we have been loved by Him. How about you? What standard of behavior are you using in your daily life? Are you focused on God's Word or more influenced by the drumbeat of social media or the evening news advocating responding to hurt with revenge? God's path for us is radical. But if we live as God prescribes, then the world will be changed for the better, and others will come to know Jesus and trust in Him. Now, since God's work in you and His work for you are way too hard for you to follow, then what do we do? If unaided, we are unequal to the task. What resources has God provided to enable us to do our part in His work in us. Look at verse 11. He says, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's no doubt that life is very challenging. It's a challenging undertaking, especially because the world, the flesh, and the devil are very persistent in looking for opportunities to trip us up and to distract us from God's path and priorities for us. What resource is so important for Paul that he mentions it so prominently? Again, look at verse 11. He says, righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Christ. Paul wrote that being a follower of Jesus Christ includes being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Our standing before God is not based on what we can do in keeping God's law. Hallelujah. Because if it were based on that, we would all be in trouble. But God clothes us. He he uses the language of putting on a garment. He says he clothes us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when the Father looks at you and me, he sees the perfect obedience of Jesus rather than our inadequate performance. Through the righteousness of Christ, we are loved by the Father in the same way that the Father loves the Son, Jesus. When we put our faith in Jesus, His righteousness is credited to our account. It's mind-boggling. How can that be? But that's what God says. That's what He promises. So what impact does that righteousness have on our way of living today? It's a righteousness that bears fruit in changed character and behavior. Notice in verse 11 where God says we are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Being clothed in the righteousness of Christ is so much more than just spare us from the judgment that we deserve for our sins. It bears fruit. God declares in Romans 8.29 that He also predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, we're changed over time in character and behavior to become more and more like Jesus. During the course of our lives following Jesus, the Holy Spirit transforms us to be like Jesus in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If that sounds familiar to you, that's the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. Those are characteristics of Jesus that the Spirit brings to fruition in our lives. What a wonder. But He does it little by little. Not only does God give us a perfect righteousness not our own, but He also gives us a direction and purpose to our lives that goes far above and beyond anything that we may have pursued before we came to faith in Christ. Again, look at verse 11. What's our purpose and our goal in life? He says it's a life that's lived to the glory and praise of God. People often struggle with discovering the purpose and meaning of their lives. It's natural for us to want to know why we're here. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we no longer have to wonder about what our lives are for. God has given us a new life in Jesus so that we can live in such a way as to bring glory and praise to our Creator. We're not surprised when an artist is recognized for the beauty of his or her paintings, pottery, or music. We all appreciated what Fred and Olivia shared of God's gifts in their lives. The art reflects the artist. So even more significantly, our lives are to reflect the character of our Creator God and especially His Son, Jesus Christ, who's redeemed us and set us on this new path of life. We reflect Him best when we seek to praise Him and bring Him glory through the way we live. Thankfully, this great undertaking of living for the glory of God is not something we do in isolation. What other resources does God give us for this work? Well, look back at verse 7. Let's read it together. He says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So what God gives us as a community that supports one another in prayer and practical help. Paul looked upon the Philippians as fellow partakers of God's grace, as partners with him in life and ministry. And so here at Redeemer, we have a motto. We are? Okay, that's good practice. Let's try again. We are? Yeah. Family on mission together. We are a family. We are partners with each other in living for Jesus. We're not alone. We're not a bunch of individuals who happen to be in the four walls of this building at this moment. We are together as a community. When one of us is struggling with life, the rest of us are here to pray for each other, to provide support and encouragement, and to offer a word of godly counsel where needed. God designed Christians to be part of a church. The Bible describes the church as the body of Christ and each of us as members of that body. Though we all have different spiritual gifts and skills and personalities, God has placed each of us here in this portion of His body so that we can grow together to be more like Jesus. We need each other. And we can count on each other to be helpers in life as God directs and equips us by His grace. Let me ask you an important question. Why are you here this morning when so many other people are out doing something else? What sets you apart from what so many other people are pursuing? Why are you here? We who are followers of Jesus Christ are here because there is no better place to be than to gather with other followers of Christ in order to worship our Savior and thank Him from the very depths of our hearts for His grace and His love that He showered on us. Are we better than other people who are not in worship this morning? No, we too are sinners who many times have chosen to say and to do things that are not pleasing to God. In fact, we're here precisely because it's only in Jesus that we find God's forgiveness for our sins and experience the joy of being reconciled to God. Though we may be tempted to hide our faults sometimes, God knows us through and through. The amazing thing about his grace is that even though he knows us and the depths of our sins, even more so than we know ourselves, he still loves us, and he's provided his son Jesus to take the just penalty for our sins. Jesus lived the life that we should be living, and he died the death that we deserve to die because of our sins. He shed his blood on the cross to wash away the stain of sin and to make us, make our sin-stained souls whiter than snow. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. It's just what he's done. It's matchless, infinite grace, marvelous stuff. Now, if you haven't turned to Jesus Christ and surrendered your life to Him by faith, then now is a wonderful time to do that. All you have to do is acknowledge that as a sinner, you're in need of what Jesus has already provided. He asks only that you repent and turn from your sins, that you believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh to die for you, for your forgiveness, and to rise again from the dead to give you eternal life, even as he has done for those of us who have trusted in Christ. Then going forward, he just wants your life to be surrendered to his lordship so that he can commence this great and gracious work in you that we've been talking about. Now, if you have surrendered your life to follow Jesus, then you have much to celebrate as a recipient of this love that that God has given, that excels all other loves and His grace that goes beyond the very best of our imagination. So, let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for what You have done for us. Lord, we have failed You in many ways, and yet You have not given up on us. But rather, You sent Your Son even before we were born to provide the solution to the sin problem that we wrestle with. Thank you for this grace, for this love that just goes beyond what we can even conceive of. Thank you for the assurance that you don't give up on us, but that you are at work within us and that you will perfect us in the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, what a promise, what a future. Help us, Lord, to live this day and every day in the confidence God of the reality of your love and grace for us and the reality of your spirits at work in us to make us like the Lord Jesus. O oh Lord, may our lives be a testimony, a reflection of your love as we love others, even as you have loved us. Lord, it's too hard for us, but not too hard for you. Do that mighty work in us that you might be glorified and praised in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.